Welcome to Saturday Night at the Movies, the podcast that celebrates classic, cult, and current films, and the people that made them, and many other aspects of pop culture. I'm your host, Steve Rubin. Our producer is Ben Shrewsbury, and our signature theme was composed by Greg Lerhoff. Here it's always Saturday night, and our mission is to chronicle film and pop cultural history one memory at a time. Tonight, we welcome the producer of the legendary horror film classic, The Blair Witch Project, Mr. Robin Cowie, who is not only a pioneering film producer, but also a technologist and entrepreneur. From creative director of the Dr. Phillips Center to Electronic Arts, head of narrative for Madden Football, Cowie's innovative work in VR, AI, and ML, machine learning, garnered industry acclaim. As president of Promising People, Cowie transforms lives through VR education and drives prison reform to reduce recidivism, reshaping the criminal justice system with technology and storytelling. Welcome, Robin. No, thanks so much for having me. It's great to be here. Oh, it's great to have you. Um, you have such an eclectic background. I love the fact that you got got into Madden football. I'll have to ask you a little bit about that later. Cause, <laughs> Absolutely. Cause you're, you're originally from South Africa. Is that true? Yeah, yeah. I, I, I grew up in South Africa. My dad was an industrial psychologist, and he used uh, video um, to train people who are working on the gold um, gold mines and diamond mines. So I started shooting with him when I was like 12. Um, and he took me to see Star Wars short, shortly after that. And uh, that kind of changed everything. So, but yeah, uh, been been uh, we we came over when when I was sixteen uh, to Atlanta, Georgia. So that's how that's how I came to the states. Well, it certainly must have been a little bit of a cultural shift for you, I bet. It it was a huge cultural shift. We actually kind of got thrown out of the country. Um, my dad had helped build a television station where we were doing uh, basically a bunch of shows kind of like the the Cosby show it was a it was a um station that had a lot of kind of black american entertainment on it in a country called Botswana and it broadcast over to Soweto and some of the areas in Johannesburg and there was a french guy who had financed it they they came you know it was in the middle of apartheid so they came and kick, uh, grabbed him and we kind of had to flee the country. Um, so, yeah, it was um, you You grew up quickly in South Africa. Oh, I'll bet. I'll bet. You know, the movie business is going through a bit of a sea change now. I mean, there's all sorts of things going on. You, you excuse me, you you are in the midst of, uh, of, of working in all aspects of technology in that you were involved in one of the great films in terms of success stories. How do you see the film business today? Do you think that the the movie business is survivable? I mean, it's going through a lot of changes. Yeah, I think um, it's it's really dynamic. Uh, obviously, a huge amount of the movie industry and the television industry is now dominated by technology companies. So I think you can't ignore the impact of that bigger picture. I think content always, in a way, has been king, always will be king. Um, but the advent of where we are with technology, it means there are just, you know, hundreds of thousands, if not millions of streams of content. And I think the cost for making content is plummeting really quickly. 
so you've got these kind of you know you've got this transition from the kind of the legacy of what was the entertainment industry to what will be the entertainment industry and we're right at the crux of that so um yeah i mean i and i've done a um a lot of work in ai a lot of work in vr a lot of a lot of work in machine learning a lot com um applied to gaming but right in the intersection of gaming and uh and kind of linear entertainment so for for madden specifically we made a the well the first thing we made was a six and a half hour playable uh version of madden with multiple branching films so you were um you played a high school quarterback whose dad was killed and you quit football and went into the army when you came out of the army you're now playing the game and your goal is to get into uh the to the super bowl and you as a character make a bunch of different choices both character wise and also gaming wise as you play and that results in multiple different outcomes so it's kind of like choose your own adventure with with football and we won a bunch of awards for it it was it was you know nobody had really seen anything like that and i think that that's um you know it's what's for me what's the most interesting about the time that we're in is that nobody really knows what's going to happen and and that's the time that i like the most um because i do think we're we're in a paradigm shift uh and and um it's that that makes it exciting because you get to be a part of you know writing the rules instead of learning the rules so it's scary but uh it's also it's also exciting well speaking of scary there's a lot of um discussion now about how uh, ai is going to affect screenwriting and acting you know are we in are we going to suddenly see computers writing screenplays and digital actors suddenly making movies and a lot of people out of work. Uh, it seems a little overblown at this point. It seems that, uh, but what do you think about these chat GBT type like scenarios? I mean, the only way that I can really uh, speak to it is my own personal life. And, you know, I have three screens whenever I work and on my left screen, I use three different AI constantly. Um, so uh, I've integrated it into every aspect of what I do, whether that's writing code or um, generating uh, images or, or rewriting uh, content that I work with. So for me personally, um, I, I have, you know, it's really only been six months that it's been this good. Um, and I personally can't, see my life without it and i i get i get the fear but for me i, I don't know i've just never really been um i've always just been trying to do the thing that i could do with whatever tools i had at the time and these are pretty magnificent tools and and i do think um my personal belief is that it'll only elevate the human condition it means a lot of what I use them to do is to, you know, automate a lot of the rote stuff and do the, do the boring stuff, which gives me more time to really focus on the things that, you know, AI can't do at this time. So I get the anxiety, but at the same time, I think, um, uh, I love, there's a story about, uh, I guess it's, uh, Elon Musk's girlfriend or whatever the pop star 
Okay, I'm gonna I'm spacing her name right now, but she she um had her voice uh synthesized into an AI. And in you know, before she did that, she released like two albums a year, and this year she'll release 300 albums. And so she basically has other people who she's given control of her voice, but she has residual to all of those albums. So she has three she's she is way way more productive by embracing that technology so um is that the right thing i I don't know i just think it's (laughs) cool and it's different and and uh yeah i'm 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 really excited about it personally well if she's releasing 300 albums i'd hate to be the person in charge of marketing each one of those because one of my complaints about about content these days is that for instance the streamers They've got too much content. I mean, it's uh, to market. I mean, I'm I'm sure that people are enjoying it, but to effectively market all these shows, and invariably, I'll hear about something. I'll say, I've never heard of that. You know? Yeah. Uh, yeah. And it's, yeah. No, I, I I would agree with you. Mar- marketing itself has dramatically changed. I mean, you know, it's we're it's we're a long way off from like three channels on a dial. You know? Oh sure. Um, you know, we 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 everything is truly truly customized and so you know it it it, even even uh you know the the 10 links like google's 10 links is so archaic now i i can't i don't search very much on google anymore um because i use ask ai or chat gtp or whatever because and then if i need something with links then i'll then i'll use that and go back so um i just feel like um marketing itself has always had to uh bring value you know to to people and so you've got to find you got to find where people are and then change your conversation to to where people are and i i think that you know we we always you know with blair i was very involved we got really fortunate uh, the the studio that we were working with was pretty young, and they asked us how you know how will how do you want to mark this market this film? And we had thirty two ideas that we wrote up, and we flew to New York and spent a day going with going through you know, our thirty two ideas. And they did twenty eight of them, and uh, you know we did things like the missing poster. So we we did a a poster that you could hang up anywhere and on a college campus, and you know, that you would then take the tear off of the number and you'd call to try and, you know, find out. And we had a recording that would run, you know, um, I want to, so I, want everything... to I want to stop you real quick. Cause I want to jump into uh, Blair. Yeah. 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 Sure. So anyway, anyway, I'm just saying marketing needs to change. Oh, you know, absolutely. And it's funny because um, one of the great fears that writers have is staring at the blank page. Yeah. And with, it, with AI, you almost have the opportunity that you've got a, a kind of a wild, crazy, unformed idea, and you can throw it out there as an AI thing, and all of a sudden they throw ideas at you. So a writer's block may become something of the past with these kinds of tools. Um, yeah, I mean they, they always say writing is rewriting, right? At least that's right. definitely the way that I that I feel like and. Yeah, I, I I think that I I find that that's really a, a huge way that I'm using it. You know, I I I will I will literally scratch out a few things, throw that in, get a pass on it, and then start rewriting, and then take that and throw it into. And then I I use you know AIs you can tune to different weights, 
So, you know, what people will call an hallucination, other people call creativity. So, <laughs> um, so, you know, I, I, uh, yeah, I, I, like I said, I'm, I'm a big fan. Well, the, the key to my writing philosophy is I have to eat first. So my writing partner and I always <laughs> start, start in a restaurant. We, we cannot create on an empty stomach. <laughs> I think that's a good rule of thumb. It's a good. <laughs> so, so the Blair Witch Project is such a, uh, an iconic story. Uh, you know, these days, 20 years on, and we, you know, the Blair Witch Project goes back 24 years ago. I mean, these days, everybody who has an iPhone can possibly be a filmmaker and everybody can, everybody has a camera, uh, and often inexpensive cameras that can give you broadcast quality video. Uh, back in the day that your movie was conceived, the idea of going into the woods with a camera and having your actors shoot this found footage movie was very novel. Can you talk about how you first got introduced to this project? Yeah, uh, so there's five guys who worked on Blair and we all went to film school together in Orlando, Florida. Um, we were the first students at the film school. So it was, you know, just 25 of us in total in the class, I think. And um, five of us were friends. We'd been talking about it, as, as you do in film school. We'd been talking about a bunch of different films that, you know, influenced us. And um, in, we talked a lot about In Search Of, Leonard Nimoy's In Search Of, and how we loved kind of how it was really factual and and really kind of scientific in a lot of ways but at the same time obviously supernatural and just so moody and we love the kind of the texture of it and the grain of it and so we we talked a lot about a, a film called the, the woods movie and then we all graduated <clears throat> and went different ways uh i went to work in nickelodeon uh and one of the the my co-producer a guy named greg hale he had gone to L.A. and tried to make it in L.A. And basically about a year after graduation, we all got back together. And uh, Ed Sanchez, who's um, one of the main directors on it, had they had cut together a, a series of stills into this kind of teaser reel. And uh, Greg brought it to my house, played the reel for me and said, oh, you know, we we found this. We've got those rights to this footage. And he he played it to my wife and I, my wife and I were about to buy a house. And uh, I basically, he, afterwards, he said, you know, uh, I said, well, when do you get the footage? When when do you get access to it? And he says, well, if you invest or you want to be a part of it, uh, we can make the footage. I was like, oh, my God, you mean it's not real? <laughs> so I was one of the first, like, you mean it's not real? people ever <laughs> and so instead of instead of uh buying the house we to my wife's credit um we, we put the money in the film and i quit my job i i at the time i had a commercial company and we for the next two years worked with the other guys to you know do everything that was blair blair is 87 minutes of, of film but there was so much else that we did outside of the movie itself before we ever got to Sundance. Well, if I if I asked my wife to in, invest in a movie instead of buying a new house, I would find myself on the street. Yeah. <laughs> we, we've been married for for uh, thirty years now, so uh, I, I'm very lucky to have her. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, um, so so 
you teamed up with, I guess it was Daniel Myrick as well as one of your classmates. And- yeah. So Dan, Dan and Ed were the kind of co-directors of uh, Greg and I were co-producers. And then a guy named Mike Manello um, was, was the other, was the fifth guy who's had an incredible marketing career um, came from the uh, indie indie world. He actually ran a movie theater uh, and, and Mike, Mike, we're all, we're all still very close everybody's still married we're all like close friends um pretty amazing that after all of the craziness we went through uh, we're well, all still well indie producing is all about raising money and the thought of raising millions of dollars often seems like trying to climb mount everest in your case with blair witch you didn't need to raise that much money uh well in total we raised about one hundred eighty thousand um, dollars by the time it was done um, the first, you know, round of money was money that I put in, uh, and then we raised a little bit more um, to to shoot the actual raw footage. And then in those days, you had to show a print uh, at Sundance in order to to actually be a part of Sundance. So we had to, you know, do a full mix and you know have an op, you know, a full audio track and the whole works. Um, so yeah, it was about one hundred eighty thousand dollars, which you know doesn't sound like a lot now, but Back then, it was it was a lot. Oh, <laughs> I think sure. we ended up I think we ended up having uh, thirty two investors to to make up that one eighty. Um, so, but yeah, they they did well. <laughs> yeah, you think? <laughs> um, so, um, you know, I'm involved in independent filmmaking. I'm constantly out there trying to sell things. Uh, often, I say to myself. I'm just going to go to a buyer and sell the concept. Why didn't you take Blair Witch and just go out to a regular? Whoops, sorry about that. I just dropped something. Um, <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, look, I mean, we were, I mean, we were all young, right? We were all really young and and um, nowhere near LA and and nowhere near um, any kind of traditional investors. And even if we had been able to go around and pitch it to anybody, there's no way, like anyone was going to invest in us. Um, it's a pretty fun story. I, um, when I came to America when I was six, 16, um, I was, a friend came to visit. We were driving in Atlanta up this windy hill and uh, there was a young lady walking her dog. Um, I didn't know she just got it for her birthday. I gestured to my friend uh, towards this lady and then hit her brick mailbox um, completely totaling my car. Um, it turned out that her father was videotaping her because it was her birthday, and he just happened to be a vice president of Blockbuster Video, and his name is Rich Angaro. Uh, ultimately, he didn't sue us, which we thought he would, but he actually um, became the first investor in the Boy Witch Project, and uh, he's now the chairman of the board of the company that I run. And he became a, a mentor and and um, a, a real guide. And um, Rich was, you know, really saw it for what it was, which was just something that hadn't been done yet. And and it and it had a uh, an authenticity and a you know an, an original approach to telling a, a story, um, and and had great acting in it. Um, and and so. He was uh, he was a big believer, so that's that's how we got our first first investor, and then 
once we, you know, once we had that, I, I just basically built on that and built on that. And by then we had a lot of the footage too. So I was able to share some of the footage. We had a great poster We'd you know, we'd built that whole up that iconic image of, of Heather's confession. So we'd built that. We had shot a lot of other things other than the movie. We, we had this really critical creative decision of at first it was going to be a documentary on the documentary and so we had shot all this like really authentic footage of like Rustin Parr and who's who's you know this guy who had killed people in the you know 40 years ago and um so we had all of that that we had started um we didn't know what to do with it when we made the decision to take it out of the film because um so we decided to put it on the internet <laughs> and nobody had marketed anything on the internet at that time and so people started discovering that and was a way to sell the movie without showing anything in the film. And, and so it, it, it really, people didn't know what to do with it. Um, and so uh, just continue to raise money as we went. And then finally, once we got into Sundance, I had knocked on enough doors and um, the, the biggest investor came in right after, after we got accepted to Sundance. Well, two things were certainly in your favor. First of all, film-going audiences love mysteries. Yeah. Pop cultural audiences love mysteries. Also, there was somewhat of a tradition. I don't know if this was impactful, but the, the South produced a lot of interesting movies back in the 70s, kind of mystery movies, kind of Legend of Boggy Creek type yeah. movies. Yeah, yeah. And, I mean, I remember seeing a number of these things, but even even non uh, horror movies like Macon County Line and yeah. uh, Tulane Blacktop, there was just kind of this tradition of rural Southern stuff leading to thrillers. And I remember, I remember vividly hearing about the movie, and the use of the internet was very interesting. Um, now, in, in the research, it says that you hooked up with a PR firm. Is that Klein and Feldman? Uh, yeah, I mean, a lot of that came uh, after we got accepted to, to Sundance. Uh, right. Jeremy Walker, who um, is just a fantastic indie uh, PR agent, um, he, uh, you know, there was a VHS tape of of the film, and so we we showed some of that to a couple of people and we i mean at the time um you know we had uh, uh what was called endeavor at that point instead of wme endeavor and it was before william march so we had a an agent that that picked up off of off of the vhs of the tape and then an incredible attorney named Stuart rosenthal who is still a very close friend of all of ours and and he was such a very he, he's such an important person for making the film successful as a business um he really gave us phenomenal grounding with the relationship with with artisan and later with lionsgate um so yeah we we were able to get really really good people um and there uh there was a an executive uh, producer that came on board after he had seen the film at the florida film festival well, we didn't show it at the Florida Film Festival, but we had had a private screening to get some feedback. And his name's Kevin. Kevin Kevin was able to connect us with with Jeremy, and then Jeremy joined, and you know, et cetera, et cetera. So we just kind of started working through that, and one person would lead us to another. But you know, there was there was five of us at the center of it, 
And every decision that we made, we would debate for like hours and days, really, you know, just to turn it over from every angle. We were we were terrified of making a mistake, you know. <laughs> so we 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 really was the right time, right place, right idea, and and really the right people for sure. Sure. Well, I was reading about um, the whole process of making the film that uh, the three actors you hired had to stay in character throughout the process and that uh, there was no screenplay per se, like a formal screenplay. It was a 35 page treatment where you basically gave them the idea. And it was basically an odyssey where they're wandering through the forest from night to night. And you're pointing them in the right direction, but none of the dialogue was written. It was all improvised. Yeah. So, so um, Greg had been in the military. He he had actually been in military intelligence, and you know the budget was a huge issue because originally he wanted to shoot it on, you know, sixteen millimeter and with you know traditional way, and there was just no way we could raise that amount of money. Um, so Greg had gone through this. Um, prisoner of war thing where they literally snuck in and grabbed him one night and and took him among among uh, uh, other people and they shorted them food and kept them up late and you know basically and in, you know interrogated terrorized them during this pow camp and uh greg was the one who was like well, what if what if we do that to actors <laughs> so um yeah they had we they had a gps and we brought him in before and, and ran him through like documentary camp, taught him how to, you know, uh, actually operate the cameras and reload the film and everything like that. And then and then showed them a couple of films, documentary films, took them through documentary theory and gave him some books and stuff like that. And and then, uh, yeah, we let him go for eight days and they they only broke scenario once um, during a really a really bad rainstorm uh we would move their tent for them but that that's about it um the rest of the time we had the reason we had two directors was one would be watching footage or one would be watching them and they'd be you know going off on and off um during the filming but we had no very little interaction with them while they were going through it and it it wasn't i mean it was it was a it was a very detailed story like we knew so they had a um, 35 millimeter kil- uh, film, you know, uh, canisters. And when they hit the GPS way station, they would put their film in there and their batteries get fresh film, fresh batteries, um, first videotapes. And then each of them would take that canister with their initials on it. And so we could tell Mike, OK, you know, you're, you're going to kick the map or or Josh, you're going to leave, you know, and go. So we were able to actually give them big picture story direction, you know, using that GPS system. Um, so we were able to guide the main parts of the film. Uh, and then the only one that we really did any multiple takes on is is the end of the film. The very last scene of the film was was shot a couple of times. Um but uh but yeah no i mean uh it was it was an experiment i mean it was it was definitely an experiment that's why we had we had the experiment which was the eight days and then we had all of this other stuff that we shot because we just didn't know whether the eight days would would stand on their, their own um did you say that they were shooting film yeah yeah so um most of it was was eight millimeter video Oh, okay. um, and then and then a bunch of it was 16 millimeter um, 
uh, film. Yeah, we'd, we'd shot on a CP16 that we had from the from from UCF from the film school we'd gone to um, that that we were using, and so they they had that uh, with them uh, as well. So mo most of it's video, but a bit, quite a bit of it is is film. So Robin, were you concerned about sound quality? Yeah, sound was sound was one of the biggest uh, challenges. Um, on on the good side, the microphone that we had on the video camera, because it was right there, was was not only good for the sound, but it, it had a huge drop off. So um, it really only had you know what was in the media side. But one of the things that artisan paid for when when we sold the film was to redo the sound and so we did go in and do quite a bit of foley work and cleaning up you know a lot just really moving the sound around to 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 really create the full atmosphere um so we we put quite a bit of additional work into the final what you actually hear in the movie um that that we, that we couldn't have done without without the investment from artisan were the actors involved in additional dialogue replacement ADR? Yeah, yeah, we we did some ADR. Um, not not a lot, not not a lot. We did some. Um, uh, yeah, yeah. I mean, pr like a, pretty much a, a full professional sound mix. Um, and well, and I think that adds a I think that adds a lot to the film because yeah, as people know, like mo mo in horror films. It's a huge part of it is sound design. Oh, sure. But I even I, I thinking of myself, even if the actors voices fell off a little bit, it added to the realism that they're making this film with their own camera. Absolutely. Having that kind of point of view um, sound was actually a huge boon um, because it's not the way that most movies are are captured. Right. So just just centering it on from that point of view alone um made it feel different so we didn't we didn't want to lose that at all so where were you based during the shoot itself i i read that everybody was in a house in maryland for 6 weeks <laughs> they said they were in germantown they were sharing a, a house was were you in that house yeah, no, Ed, Ed was, uh, you know, Ed's from Fredericks, Maryland. Um, and and um, so I actually was in Orlando for a, a large part of it, still raising money and dealing with issues like we uh, we nearly got kicked out of Seneca State Park, um, which is where we were shooting. So uh, somebody had to deal with that um, a lot. You know, I, I worked with Greg and, and Ed for 15 years and uh, a lot of my role was always either raising money, doing all the, the law work or, or solving big picture problems, you know, um, when, when it all goes wrong, then somebody has got to figure out, you know, how to, how to fix the big, you know, the, the, those things. So I would, a lot of times I'm like the advanced guy, uh, or, or the cleanup guy, you know, that's, that's, um, that's a pretty important job. Yeah, no, I mean, we, we were all, you know, we, we all, we all had huge, um, we couldn't have done it without the five of us. Each each person on the on the film had a huge role, you know, really, really amazing, um, you know, but from Ed and Ed and uh, Dan's uh, editing skills, like the, the editing of the film. I mean, uh, people don't really talk a lot about that, but I mean, and it's a big uh, tribute to the fact that 
there was so much footage and if we didn't have digital a digital we had a media 100 that we cut the film on and if you didn't have digital editing i don't think we could have made the film because there was so much footage that had to be processed and worked through and it was a, a long long edit um so um i i think the a huge brilliant part of the film is actually the editing because so much of that stuff is in reality done out of sequence where we'd be, you know, because of the perspective, you could pull dialogue lines from all over the raw footage. You know, it was eight days of constant filming. So you were able to truly, in a way, like write a lot of it in post, you know. Um, so they they did an incredible job. And without like Mike's, um, you know, a lot of the marketing ideas came from from Mike um without you know greg's physical um uh, production skills and physical ideas you know around the military and then we had another guy named ben rock um who's really an amazing guy he worked on a bunch of the other films he made the stick figures um and and uh so he he uh had a huge contribution and yeah, no, it was a it was a good it was a really good group of people. There's a lot of people that I'm not mentioning, you know. <laughs> this idea of uh torturing your actors to create tension, I found interesting. Uh, I also read that um well, I mean, there's a lot of a lot of interesting behind the scenes that the filmmakers actually uh in a way terrorized the actors because the actors had no idea what was going on a lot of the time. So, you know, if they would be banging sticks in the in the in the forest at night it could scare the living hell out of you i also yeah, read yeah, yeah had, 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 a, had a um like basically a boom box whatever that would run around the tent to create noises that they recorded it you know on uh or or literally shake the tent or uh at one point one of ed's friends was like running through the woods like in 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 white you know in the distance and you know like yeah we i mean we definitely tried uh basically tried every kind of traditional spooky thing we could possibly think of you know <laughs> some of most of which never made the film but a lot of it uh you know uh yeah no it was tr it was true true uh guerrilla filmmaking for sure in every in every way that you can define that <laughs> and i also heard that they the um on on the uh supply side they kept on giving the, the actors less and less food as the shoot war yeah yeah i mean that that came directly off of that kind of prisoner of war camp thing you know less 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 food keep them up way, uh, longer hours they're physically really tired i mean heather heather said that there were times that she had to walk away and just like close her eyes and go, okay, I got a boyfriend. This is not really going on. You know, it, it was, um, it, and, and they were, they were just, you know, that's the other thing I would say the two most underrated things in my opinion of, of the blood witch project is the editing and the acting. I mean, that their performances are just so visceral and relatable. And you know, I think that's one of the reasons why, it's lasted as long as it has because those those performances are just so honest and vulnerable and true you know so they they uh yeah they we put them we put them through the ringer for sure now i read that um if there was a moment they wanted to break character they would all look at each other and say the word 
taco is that true a bull, bulldozer uh so it was a it was a we they did have a walkie and the signal to break scenario was bulldozer okay um, and so yeah that that's how and that's when i said we we got them one night when it was raining that that's what happened when that when that happened yeah because yeah, they were soaked to the skin their tear their yeah. leaked and they had to go to a motel that must have been very pleasurable for them Yes. <laughs> um, now, how did how did Artisan come into the picture? Uh, obviously, you probably went to a number of companies, I would assume. No. Well, so there was a we got into several uh, film festivals The we actually were um, a premiere slot at the L.A. Film Festival and we uh, got into midnight at Sundance. And there was a huge debate about whether we should premiere at L.A. Film Festival or or show at Sundance. Now that seems like a silly conversation, but nobody had ever sold a movie um, at midnight in Sundance. So like it was kind of the B movie slot, you know, maybe you'd get, you know, person here and there or it'd stay up and go. But none of the business was really done there. So we, we were the first movie to ever sell out of the midnight screening. Um, but it's Sundance, you know, and it, it even at, at that time, it was it was still legendary and it. They really did have the spirit of independent filmmaking, and we felt like, no, this, you know, that's where we needed to be. And uh, at by that time, the the website had done a really good job of building up, um, you know, people online who were anticipating it. Uh, and and then our agents were fantastic, and uh, we we came out. We, we were with our agents and our our attorney eating dinner right across from the Egyptian. And we came out and there was a, a line around the block of people trying to get tickets into a sold out screening. And uh, it was just insane. And then everybody was there, like all the buyers were there. And we finished it at about 12. Uh, no, what uh, what time? Like 2.30. And uh, at 3.30 in the morning, we were kind of just right winding down at a, a party that our attorney had thro uh, thrown for us. And uh, he came to us and Greg said to Greg and I, he's like, artisan wants to make a preemptive bid and they want to meet now. And so Greg and I got in the car with, with Stuart and we went and started negotiation. And then at about six o'clock, we, we shook on a deal. The agents um, kind of artisan, it was a three-story uh condo whatever artisan would be at the top we were at the bottom and then we'd come in the middle and negotiate <laughs> and <laughs> just go back and forth like that and uh, we were coming home from from selling the film and it was, it was snowing and icy and we ended up skidding the van and landing up in a snowbank and uh it was just greg and i together and like we we uh we knew that we'd just sold the movie but nobody else knew that we'd sold the movie, and uh, so we 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 were able to get back to the condo, get dig the dig the van out of the ice and snow, <laughs> and go tell everybody we'd sold the movie. I don't expect you to give me the details of the contract, but uh, in in normal independent movie parlance, you sell your movie and you maintain some kind of serious profit participation. I mean, these days when you sell a movie to Netflix. You, they buy it in one, uh, you know, one price, and there is no back end, like there is no back end in uh, most of streaming. But I assume that back in '99, uh, your attorney negotiated you a very nice uh, profit participation. 
Yeah, I mean, look, um, nobody at that time, definitely including Artisan, ever thought of the ridiculous, right? Like nobody thought like, oh yeah, this movie's gonna really, at the end it grossed in all in around $500 million. So um, nobody thought it would be anywhere close to it. Before that, you know, Pi, uh, Darren Aronofsky's Pi was the biggest movie that Artisan had had released. So the brilliant thing that that um, Stewart did was he really connected the movie to two things. One, box office performance. And he said, look, if it does this in the box office, you know, this happens. If it does this in the box office, this happens, you know. Um, and you know, basically got to the point where it's like a ridiculous conversation from artisans perspective. Um, because they were like, it's, you know, it's never gonna go, it's never gonna make over $10 million. That's not gonna happen. Uh, and we we're like, oh yeah, well, it's not gonna happen. If it's not gonna happen, you can give up on this, you know. So that the connecting it to box office was amazing. Um, and and then just um really uh protecting the the downside of the deal, which is um, you know, by having everything being reported publicly, um that was kind of the the judge of of the film. And you know, um, yeah, he did he did a great job. He he did oh. he did he's 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 an amazing it's an amazing human and, a, and an amazing attorney. Well, it's a good thing you didn't sell this to a studio because the movie would have done five hundred million dollar gross, and they would claim it's still not in profit. Yeah, well, yeah, I mean, uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, no, it was it was always a interesting relationship uh, there. Um, we, we we definitely saw the best of filmmaking and the worst of filmmaking. I mean, we 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 got an inside tour of all of that, and and um, it's uh. It, it it, it 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 always has been very very difficult to be um you know a content maker and controlling your content um it's and it's no different today than it was back then <laughs> so you followed you released uh, the documentary after the film was released or was it about the same time no, so we we uh, one of the ideas, the marketing ideas that I talked about, the you know thirty two ideas was uh, we we had all of this footage, and so we said, well, what if we make what if we were and ended up on the Sci Fi Channel? What if we take a lot of that footage and make this this uh, this documentary? And that came out before the film, um, so it really again took, gave nothing of the film away. But but really made this really compelling. At the time, it was the highest rated special that the Sci-Fi Channel ever had, um, and so it just gave another boon. And we we had we had so many. Th we had a traveling museum, so we actually built a museum that went to kind of the higher end, you know, theaters in in each one of the major markets. And it literally it had the you know the original. Um, you know Ellie Kedwood uh, illustrations and a, and a, you know a lot of so we had we had faked a lot of those documents and all the Rustin Parr stuff and all that we'd we'd faked all of that stuff and then turn it into a traveling museum so people would walk in and see you know see the evidence photos of the kids having disappeared and you know all of that stuff so um, because of the kind of the the detail that went into the backstory. Um, it was it was very hard for people to 
suspend their disability. <laughs> you know, so, was I mean, it wasn't very hard. <laughs> so during this whole filmmaking process, everything associated with Blair Witch, was there ever one of those inexplainable moments where something untoward happened? Perhaps something a little you could you could say that there was something else going on, or was uh, did you have a totally clean experience? Uh not on black. I mean, you know, we made we made horror movies for 15 years after that. And and I definitely had some really insane experiences in, in other places. But uh on Blair itself, no, I mean Blair Blair itself was just super surreal. I mean, it you know, but by the time we were on the cover of Newsweek and Time at the, you know, the same same week. Um, you know, and you, you know, at that point, not me or Greg or but Ed and Ed and Dan, because they were on the cover. Like I would be like in the airport, you know, going to take a pee and somebody would walk up and try and get a, Ed's autograph at the latrine. You know, <laughs> what the hell is going on? You know, so um, and then Artisan made a an interesting choice. They they decided they didn't want to have the actors do any PR at all. So they'd ended up going to Ed and Dan to do a lot of that. And there were some challenges with that later on, but, but at the time I think it was the right marketing idea. So Ed and Dan, like really, you know, so a, a lot of what like, I went to South Africa, I'm from South Africa originally, right? I, I said that I went to South Africa to promote the film, you know, Greg went to Kentucky to promote the film. I went to Atlanta cause I went to high school in Atlanta to promote the film. You know, Mike, Mike went, you know, all over New York and, you know, so all five of us were were really kind of we we were we really worked really hard to to get the get the word out there in in every way we could you know? the, the reason i ask about the supernatural element is i had a chance to work with billy friedkin on a movie oh and wow during the making of the exorcist back in the 70s there were a lot of stories going on that there were some supernatural things happening during the making of that movie, oh, yeah. including yeah. a fire that destroyed one of the sets. And I asked Billy about that, and he said it was all faked, faked because they were over budget, <laughs> and they didn't want to, they didn't want to emphasize the fact they were over budget, so they created all these little supernatural pratfalls. That yeah, that's that's great. I love that. <laughs> uh, uh, yeah, no, no. Uh, on Blair itself, uh, nothing crazy. But like I said, I mean, we, we, I had a, we had this film called Lovely Molly that we did, and and um, it was a a house that was built in the French Revolutionary War, and then it was a hospital during the Civil War, and I mean, it it was that house was the most disturbing place I've ever been in, and people would, and including me, would have their shirts pulled and. Like uh, we we tried to shoot in an attic and the lights wouldn't work and um, I we've had a psychic come in and do like all kinds of readings we got a um, and and we had a couple of different supernatural people come in and like give us info and they all said that there was a ghost in the attic who was uh, upset with that we hadn't asked permission to film in the house and so uh, I had to go and apologize to the ghost and. Once I did that, we put we brought the lights in and it worked. So, <laughs> um, gives, gives yeah, new, gives new meaning to uh, contracts and negotiation. Exactly, the producer's got to do whatever he's got to do to make it the show go on. <laughs> now, did Artisan ask you guys for a sequel? 
Yeah. So, so uh, originally, you know, we said there's no way we're going to make a sequel. Uh, we weren't interested in making a sequel. And um, then they came back and they said, well, you know, you don't understand. We're going to make a sequel. So we're like, okay. So we said, we'll pitch you an idea for, for what we want to do. And they said, okay, that's great. We're going to go and test the ideas because they had gotten ideas from other people. And they went and tested the ideas. And our idea came back as the number one idea to do as a sequel. So we we're like, okay, great. And this was like in February. And they're like, well, there's just one thing. Your idea takes place in the snow. And and uh it's we gotta have the movie in the theaters by June because we're gonna do a uh we're gonna do a uh we're gonna go public. Artisan was gonna go public. And we're like, there's no way. Like we don't we pitched you an idea, we don't have a script, you gotta build a village in the snow and everything there's no way and they're like oh okay well then we're going with idea number two so that's how we didn't get to make the sequel so that's the story and was that released that spring like they said yeah i mean uh joe berlinger did the sequel to the film and uh it was it was re it was released that summer yeah which yeah, I, re I, know, I recall my... i recall it didn't do very well yeah no it was yeah it was a big failure yeah um yeah no it, they were just they were trying to move in my opinion too fast and um yeah i mean i it did so badly that artisan you know ultimately sold the you know entire company to lionsgate so yeah i think the phrase money grab comes to mind there i'm not gonna you know no i think everybody everybody makes their choices <laughs> no exactly exactly so when did you make you you were obviously making horror films with your buddies. When did you make the transition to more technology stuff? Well, I, I bought a web company quite shortly after Blair that because I was really inter I was really interested in in um how just how uh, the internet specifically was gonna put you know, people in con direct contact with each other. Um, I I really like the idea of essentially controlling the distribution, you know, being able to get as close as you possibly can to your consumer. And so I, I did that um, while we were making movies. And that was really interesting. It was a company called Worldwide Brands. Um, and it was you know, just helping people during the eBay days when eBay was getting really big and Amazon was starting um so that was that was cool i i kind of ran that and then i started getting more and more into uh visual effects and um and kind of you know technology and then we made three uh three video games and i i really liked doing that there were pc games with a, a group called uh Gather gathering of developers god uh out of austin texas and i really liked that i got really interested in that and then uh and then there was an opportunity that 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 came across to make this kind of film version um of or of 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 Madden and uh I pitched a bunch of ideas I got on really well with the director and uh once once we made that first one it that game sold that made 1.6 billion dollars <laughs> that game that we worked on and so then we got to do two more um and by then i was just hooked you know by then i, I was really uh i really liked the idea of um participating with your content you know allowing people to 
make choices and and you know interaction and and having more agency and um and now you know now with the advent of ai even your you know your secondary and tertiary characters have an intelligence of their own that you can you know uh put into it so yeah yeah so yeah that 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 really uh i i'd always i would always like the tech part of it um but but making the video games for blair kind of kind of started me down that path so uh, to wrap this up tell us a little bit about promising people and how you are impacting into the prison system yeah um you know my dad spent his whole life doing training uh and teaching people um and then uh he had worked with a guy who'd done a lot of uh building he built over 10,000 homes a lot of land development all kinds of stuff like that but he ran he ran a into trouble with with uh, um and went to prison for seven years and so my dad had helped him while he was in prison and so i i'd done a lot of research into uh vr and i mean i'd done a lot of work with vr before that i i was in london um creating immersive uh, experiences for marketing companies and uh covid hit and my dad was like, we really got this company in an interesting place, but we don't have any technology chops. And so I kind of came in and what we do is we help uh, teach trades. So like being an electrician or an electrical helper or a plumber or HVAC or you know anything like that. Um, we help teach those skills in prison and, and out of prison. Um, normally to become an electrical helper, it takes about eight months. Um, we've got that down to 15 days. Uh, and headsets can go anywhere in prison. A lot of times they don't have any internet in prison. They have, because of lockdowns and everything like that, they, they can't get instructors in there, especially not in the trades. And you certainly couldn't bring in, you know, tons and tons of equipment into a prison, you know, it'd be too dangerous and, etc cetera, etc cetera. so we were able to put a you know full chainsaw or <laughs> drill or anything we want in virtual reality and uh teach people how how to use you know all the tools all the situations and the people who are in prison you know really enjoy the the escape the the ability to use their body in a in a full way and uh, the learning process is just incredible. The immersiveness of it is incredible. And uh, we're having really meaningful results. So we've been, I've been at it for about a year now. And um, we're we're just starting our second pilot. We've got seven more to go. And uh, we're using um, AI to actually do all the testing. So um, it does, you don't need a teacher at all. Everything happens in the headset. Um, you don't need internet at all. Um, it's all recorded to the actual headset itself. And uh, I think it's I think it's really going to have an impact. Um, you know, we have the highest recidivism rate uh, in the world. Um, there are there are, um, there are over 100 million people who have a criminal record in this country. Um, and you take the top. Excuse 30... me. Excuse me. Did you say 100 million? Yeah. That's that's a very scary statistic. Yeah. If you take the top 30 states in the United States, the next country comes in at 31. 
So we really have an incarceration problem. If you wait five years, um, there's a 90% chance that you'll go back to prison. So um, we really, we it's a really broken system. Uh, and then kind of at the same time, you have this trades crisis that's going on. You can't find electricians, you can't find plumbers, you can't find, so we've got this workforce development problem that's intersecting with this recidivism problem. And so that's that's what I'm trying to bridge is is uh, by using VR and AI, we're trying oh, to basically impart a yeah skill set. It's it's uh, it's working. It's it's well, it's, that's it's music to my ears. As I mentioned in our pre-talk, I you know I've been mentoring a, an ex-convict for the last eighteen months, and he spent eight years in Corcoran State Prison in California and learned nothing. Yeah, nothing. He had no trade. He he just he recently wanted to learn to be a welder. He could have easily learned how to be a welder on one of your VR systems. Yeah, yeah. No, that's great. I mean, I I hope yeah. that you have the backing to get this thing moving. Yeah, I mean, so so far so so good. I've I've got a big presentation to all our investors on Friday. So, um, you know, I I I uh, always whether it was trying to do something new and different or unexpected in film or trying to do the same in video games and you know i, I like I, I think i told you earlier on when there are no rules that's where i feel most comfortable because um we're trying to we're just trying to think differently and and do something unexpected that has an impact and a result and uh i think we've got a I think we got a solid chance here to to make something and then this time yeah, I, I love. I don't regret a day of the entertainment world. I I loved it. It was it was it was wonderful. But um, this is an opportunity to you know to to have a a meaningful impact on people's lives who uh, truly deserve a second chance. Um, so yeah, so that's I mean, what I'm doing now. <laughs> you mentioned in your initial bio that you were the creative director of the Dr. Phillips Center. I'm actually not familiar with the Dr. Phillips Center. Is that a technology company? No, it's a it's a huge uh, it's a massive theater, uh, stage theater. Um, and oh. actually, when I did that, um, my mom got cancer. So I left L.A. and I, I didn't want to travel anywhere. But I kind of sat by her bed and she was like, she was like, Rob, you need to go. <laughs> like, you need to not sit by my bed. Um, unfortunately, I had three more years with her. So um, but uh, I looked around for something that I could do that was different and unusual. So we we built this really it's a five hundred million dollar building, um, but the brilliant thing about it is we we turned a theater a traditional theater into kind of a broadcast center. So um, it was yes it had a you know a, a black box and a, and two incredible uh, theaters as well, um, but you could also broadcast out of it and and so it we kind of became the center of the community and um, so I was the creative director for that and um, I I got I was. I was only there for for a year, but I got to design kind of the experience from the moment you found found out about it all the way through and be on the design team. And um, again, like for, especially for Orlando, is unprecedented. There's only thirty theaters that are this scale in the world. Um, so so yeah, so I. <laughs> it's not so much the medium; it's more like trying to turn it on its head that makes me happy <laughs> and, that, and you said that's orlando florida yeah that's in orlando florida Got it. yeah 
Well, everyone, we've been listening fascinating discussion with Robin Cowie, the producer of the Blair Witch Project and doing so many other good things. You've been listening to Saturday Night at the Movies. I'm your host, Steve Rubin. Our producer's Ben Shrewsbury. Robin, thank you so much for taking the time tonight. Yeah, you're very welcome. Thanks for having me. Yeah, appreciate it. Have a good one. Thank you.